Jesus came to save a diverse people. And through his blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, By what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people will believe John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the older son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. 
When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling a story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming and being with us. I got, I got a little bit of honoring to do here before, uh, before we get into the word of the Lord. Uh, first of all, is Kristen in the room? Kristen Gillis? Uh-oh, yesterday was Kristen Gillis's birthday, y'all. And we like celebrating these staff birthdays. She made it another time around the sun. It was a big year. It was a big year. She made it. To know Kristen is to love Kristen. Uh, if you don't know what she does on staff at the church, uh, she basically runs the thing. Um, so most of what you guys take for granted would not happen without Kristen. She has a difficult job that's far, far behind the scenes, so she doesn't get noticed very often. But we see you, Kristen, and more, most of all, the Lord sees you. So we love you. Happy birthday. We're really thankful for you. Uh, second, Pastor Travis is in the room. Travis, we stand up just for one second. Still the six foot nine frame up. Look at the size of this Indiana man. That's, so that's, past, that's Travis McGowan. They're applauding and they don't even know why yet. That's when you know you're doing it. Uh, so Travis has been a, a pastor here for, I don't know, five years, six years, a lifetime it feels like. Uh, and uh, I cannot quite express the depths of my gratitude for Travis and the amount of difficult situations he's navigated for us with wisdom and most of all, a humility and biblical insight. Uh, Travis has carried a hard-to-imagine load as one of the pastors here. He preaches for us regularly. Uh, he's involved in community groups and basically, basically everything. A dear friend, and I don't, it's, I don't know exactly how to say it. He's got an opportunity to get a new certification at work. Travis has a crazy job. He, he basically... Cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapist, can I call you that? Uh, just a, behavior a behavior therapist. Sorry, he doesn't deal with cognition. He's not into brains and stuff. Uh, I thought that'd be funnier, but it's not, you know. He's a, basically a therapist who deals with really difficult situations and circumstances, and he's got an opportunity to take uh, an exam to raise his qualifications, maybe make some more money, Lord willing. We pray a prayer of blessing over you. Reach out and claim that blessing, Travis. <laughs> Uh, so long story short, back in the spring, late winter of last year, he approached us and said, hey, this is coming. I'd like to take some time away from the elder team to prepare for this test and take it. And so Travis is going to take a break. He's stepping back from the elder team until April 1st. And I just don't know of anyone who's earned a break more than Pastor Travis had. So I just want to take a second and say, I love you. I'm grateful for you. You are a gift to God's church. You are the godliest man I know. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So I thank God for you. And for the rest of us, uh, I encourage you to find some time to honor Travis, whether it's, uh, I don't know, he's not on Facebook. That's how holy he is. Uh, write him a letter. I know he loves Mission Barbecue. Uh, he loves food and restaurants, so anything you can do to bless him and encourage him and pray that this time away would be refreshment uh, and in, uh, an encouragement for him that he'd pass his test first go-round. It kind of feels like the, the true adult of the elder team is leaving the room, so I'm a little bit terrified of him being gone. Um, but yeah, love you and thank, thank God for you. 
And, and also, if, you, if Travis is kind of your go-to pastor, let's give him a break until April. So there's six other pastors that you can talk to. They're, we're all on the app. All of our contact info is on the app. So if you have questions or concerns, let's just give him some space to study and, and rest. So love you, Travis. Thank God for you. So that's happening now. Okay. Uh, when I read this text, uh, the word that keeps coming to mind, uh, this and really the next few, is this word authority. That word make anybody uncomfortable these days? Authority, uh, power. I think for me personally, as a human and what I observe, I would say authority has fallen on hard times in the recent decades. I just don't know anyone who likes being told what to do. Anybody really enjoy that experience? Maybe at work, if you've had a bad boss, you want someone to speak with you with some clarity or something, but anybody wake and be like, I can't wait to be told what to do all day today. We don't like listening to others, not just when they tell us what to do. We don't like advice. Most of us don't ask for advice, and we don't listen when we get it. Uh, it seems everyone has become an expert in everything these days. Have you noticed that? Um, it's, it seems when you hit your mid-30s that you have to start a podcast and speak authoritatively about things. Um, I, I have uh, two cars. I have a bit of a car problem. They have over half a million miles between them, um, which means I have a good mechanic friend. And uh, yeah, I recommend finding a good mechanic. And so I was getting work on my car, as one does when you have cars like I do. And I was talking to him and I asked him, what's the worst part about your job? Because it, so, it seems so wonderful to me. Someone comes in with a broken thing and you fix it for them and they give you money and then the transaction is over. My job is not that way. And so I envy those kinds of jobs. So what's the worst part about your job? He said, people don't listen to me. They, they don't do what I say. Somebody, a guy came into my my uh, shop the other day with a Range Rover, which is a fancy, expensive car. And the engine had problems with it. And my man Luke said, listen, you have two options. Option one, leave your Range Rover here until we repair it and the part gets in. Option two, drive it straight home and park it until the part's in and then we'll tow it back. Well, what did the guy do? He just kept driving it. And Luke even told the guy, he's like, if you drive it like this, you will break this car. You'll You'll blow up the engine, literally. Three weeks later, he gets a phone call from this guy in Nowheresville, Kentucky, saying, hey, it turns out you were right. I blew up the engine. <laughs> we don't listen to our doctors. You notice that recently? Says the doctor. I got a loud uh-huh from the doctor. We don't listen to our doctors because let's be honest, WebMD tells me something different, and what do they know? We don't listen to our scientists. Uh, two weeks ago, the, the Church Planting Network, formerly known as Sojourn Network, if you missed the big PR announcement, it's not called Harbor Network, a cooler name. You can go read about why we did that on the internet. Uh, we had a bunch of pastors in town for our Harbor Church Planting Network, and I got to talk with pastors all over the country. And to a person, they said they've never felt such distrust, such skepticism, and such hostility from their congregation and the, their whole time in being pastors. It, it doesn't seem like this rejection of authority is specific to any field. We've just rejected authority. We've rejected expertise. And, and where we're at now as a culture is the, even the concept of authority and expertise is being questioned. There's some fields of study. There's some places in the, in the country where they would argue any authority at all or any claim to expertise at all is evil. So... 
in some ways, I think we're all just acting like Satan in the garden when he looked at Adam and Eve, and, or he looked at Eve, and he said, did God really say? Did the expert really say? There is this endless questioning and rejection of authority. And I think in some ways it's, it's taken new spins recently, or the, the specific circumstances, or what this rejection of authority looks like is a little bit new, but it, it's really as old as humanity itself. The desire to be our own experts, the desire to be in control and have authority over our own life is at the, is at the core of a broken human heart. And I find it so fascinating. If you remember last week, you should go back and listen to Pastor Bobby's sermon if you missed it, the famous story of Jesus clearing the temple, uh, healing blind people, healing lame people. I just want you to imagine, if, you, if Jesus came into church and he started, he, Bobby had this really uncomfortable, but I think powerful illustration about Jesus basically turning over the tables of our lobby. Jesus flips over our lobby and he starts performing miracles out in the parking lot. What might you be inclined to ask him on Monday? What question would you have for him on Monday? We know what the experts of his day wanted to know. Verse 23 says, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right? <laughs> you not see it. It's okay if you don't laugh. I get it. I'm, I'm wound up. I've been drinking coffee since 6 a.m., right? Like, I'm wound up, you guys. It's fine if you don't laugh at that, but you have to see some of the strangeness of that scenario. A man comes in, quoting prophecies, fulfilling them, throwing out money changers, performing prophetic miracles. And they say, what makes you the expert, Jesus? Who gives you the authority to do this? And as Meg was reading, did you notice Jesus didn't answer? You notice he didn't say, because I'm the eternal son of God, the firstborn over all creation, the alpha and the omega. I hold all things. You know, he doesn't come with this huge hammer of information and authority. And instead, he responds with a question about John the Baptist, one that they refuse to answer. So this is so often God's way with authority. He doesn't crush with answers. He invites us to wrestle with questions, to think, to struggle, in, so, in some ways to not let go of his word until it gives us an answer it gives us a blessing. Why? The authority question is not about information. It's about the posture of the human heart. Again, these men already knew Jesus was, was fulfilling prophecies in their midst. They already knew what he had taught. They already knew about the miracles. They knew the information. There isn't something wrong with their brains. There's something twisted in their hearts. They had the information, but the information was not enough. So instead of information, Jesus provides two stories to stir the imagination. And this is the way of Jesus. We'll look at some of this again next week. Jesus is the kind of guy, when you say, tell me about heaven, he'll say, let me tell you a story. Why does Jesus tell stories so often? Does that ever fuss you? Or you want Jesus just to shoot you straight, but then he tells you a story about mustard seeds or figs or what's with the stories, Jesus? The imagination, the imagination is, is the hidden back door to the human heart. Have you ever found yourself 
Uh, we're a big Disney movie family. You've heard me say this before. Have you ever found yourself unexpectedly crying in the middle of a children's movie? As an adult, have you ever, have you ever gotten to that one line in Moana and, it, and you sing and then your lip quivers and you don't know why? You know, have you wondered why Beauty and the Beast can make you cry over and over again? Maybe that was too much. The imagination is the hidden back door to the human heart. Your imagination sneaks behind the defenses you put up with all of the right answers and all of the positions that you're supposed to hold to. Your, your imagination makes you feel things and can shift your focus somewhere new before you even know what's going on. So Jesus so often shows his authority or makes appeal to his people through stories. We don't get an answer about authority here. We don't get an answer about power. We get two stories. The first one is about two sons. But what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went away. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? So the first son has a bad answer, right? If you're a parent, you don't want your kid talking to you that way, to be frank. He has a bad answer, but, you know, he changed his mind and eventually he did what his dad asked him to. The second son has a perfect answer, but he doesn't do what his dad said. Which is the better response to authority in your life, to say no, but then change your mind and go, or to say the right thing, but not follow through. Jesus is trying to help us see here through a story that seems obvious that we all know who obeyed their father here. Authority must be believed and obeyed. It's not just about acknowledging the correctness of the information the authority gives. It must be received, believed, and obeyed, even if it's slow and even if it's reluctant. And can you feel how, how human this invitation is, how relatable it is, the grace in it? Maybe you've forgotten that Jesus is talking to people that are trying to kill him. We learned back in Matthew chapter 12 that from that point on, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're making a plot to kill Jesus. So he's interacting with these men who want to kill him. And did you notice that he doesn't say at the end, but lo, there was a third son who said, whatever you tell me to do, I will do perfectly to the best of my ability. And then saying this, the third son immediately went and did all that he said he would do. Jesus doesn't offer this third example of this perfect kid who does it all perfectly. Listen to his explanation for what he's doing. He says, John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. Well, tax collectors and prostitutes did. Even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Who but Jesus can make tax collectors and prostitutes the good guys of a story? That should make you feel the grace that's happening here. This is, like Today, this would be like Jesus coming and telling a story, and he sets up politicians and drug dealers as the good guys of the story. 
Only Jesus could make the lowest of the low heroes of this story. They've lived their lives saying no to God. They've lived their lives immorally. They're the first sons from the story, though. When John the Baptist came, they changed their minds, and they followed Jesus. They changed their minds. They believed like the first son decided to believe. Yes, it was half-hearted. Yes, it was late. Yes, they made mistakes on the front end, but they changed their minds and they turned around. They re- that's the essence of repentance. They turned around and started doing something different. They went and what did and did what dad asked them to anyway. You got to see that the authority of God comes by grace. It doesn't have to, but it does. It's for the reluctant. It's for the immoral. It's, it's for those stuck on the couch of their own lives. You know what I mean by that? People are just sitting, watching their own lives pass them by, not sure what they're going to do, what they want to do, how they could do it. The invitation is, is to those who've believed wrong, for those who have lived wrong, for those who have related wrong. And the invitation is believe me and turn to me, repent. Turn to me, listen to me, follow me. Jesus wants our words, yes, but the truth of our words is found in our lives. And that's an invitation to the half-hearted, the unsure, the doubting, those prone to changing their minds. Come to me and follow me. Believe enough to repent and to turn and follow. This first story about the sons is an indictment on lip service Christianity. Y'all know what that is, I imagine. If you live in Floyd County, you know what that is. If I say the right things, then I must be good. This is an indictment of lip service Christianity, and yet it's also an invitation to learn to live by grace, even when you're half-hearted and unsure. So in response to the authority question, Jesus first offers this combo story that's warning and grace, invitation to come and follow. Don't give me your words. Don't give me the easy answers. Give me your life. The second story gets to why this is so difficult to us. The second story is an invitation to the renewal of our very hearts. And so it begins in verse 33. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. Jesus is telling a story about something that is entirely normal practice. Uh, this guy, you could think about it as like this guy is starting a wine franchise. He, there's a business owner. He's buying some land. He's buying, he's buying all the equipment that you need to run his next branch of his wine distribution business. Where I lived in Florida, Chan's Wine World was the wine distributor down there. And every strip mall had a Chan's Wine World in it. It's keg liquors, whatever. I know we're talking about liquor here in church. Where have we gone? I'm sorry, Lord. It just, here we are. Okay, it's a normal thing. And it all made sense to them what was going on here. A guy bought a land, bought all the equipment needed to do this thing. And then he moved to another country to open up his, his next franchise. He leased the land to tenants to take care of it for them. Totally normal then, totally normal now. This isn't some weird outlandish practice. This next part though of the story will perhaps feel not so normal if you were listening earlier. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. 
Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him. Get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. These just crazy people? Are these just violent tenants, bad hires? Does this seem extreme to anybody? It's a little bit extreme, man. What's the deal? Uh, well, first, you have to remember that in the context of this story, there were no airplanes, there were no cell phones, there were, you were days away from your neighbors in some instances. So when the, neighbor, when the, when the owner moves to another country to set up his next franchise, they're not going to see him for a long time. He, he's far, far away. And the second thing you need to know about is about how land ownership worked back then. Y'all know about common law marriage? Remember that? Okay. Well, okay. Thank you. Up front. Thank you, Glenda. Appreciate that. If you don't know what common law marriage is, allow me to elucidate for you. Common law marriage is if you shacked up with somebody long enough, eventually the government says, ah, you're married. I mean, that's basically it. If two people, a man and a woman, live together long enough for a set period of time, then in the eyes of the government, they just say, you know what, let's just call it what it is. You're married. No ceremony, nothing. It's common law marriage. Land ownership worked in a very similar way back then. If the owner of the land didn't show up for a set period of time, the, the shortest amount of time I could find in the teachings of old rabbis was about three years. So if this guy who lives in another country, and it takes months to travel across countries, if he's gone for three years, then in the eyes of that government, the local place, you get that land. Does that help you see what's happening at all right now? These tenants are, are trying to own the land that is not theirs. This would be a significant jump in their tax brackets. It would change their place in the world. It would change their family's place in the world. If we can keep the owner away long enough, even if we have to kill people for it, then all of this becomes ours. All of this becomes ours. So fundamentally, what's, what's happening in this second parable is the tenants are functionally living like their owners. Is that, you see what I'm saying? There's too many people here for me to ask a question like that. I'm sorry. They're functionally trying to live like their owners. They are tenants who've forgotten their role or just neglected their role and decided to live like they are the ones who own the place. They're acting like something they're not. And they kill anyone that reminds them of who they really are. Tenants, not owners. And before you think these people are crazy, just consider, how did you respond the last time somebody corrected you? How did you respond the last time someone behaved as though they had some expertise that maybe you did not have? And you probably didn't kill them, at least not physically. But come on, y'all, y'all ain't ever left a meeting and in your brain, you're thinking about, oh, if they had just said this. Oh, if they say this the next time, I'm, and you load all that up in your minds. How prone the human heart is to forget that all of life is a gift. God knows we are slowly drifting all the time into thinking that we're owners and not tenants. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as he's promising his people a beautiful place to live, a safe neighborhood, a fruitful lives. 
He tells his people post-Egypt that their children will forget what's happened. Their children will forget why they are so blessed. So they must be continually reminded. God commands them, tell your kids this. This is Deuteronomy 6. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all of his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had sworn to, our give, to give our ancestors. The Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he's done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands the Lord our God has given us. You would think with something as significant as the Exodus, the miraculous rescuing of God's people from slavery in Egypt, that would be a hard thing to forget. And God says, no, your children will forget this. You have to remember. You will start acting like your owners and you have to remember you are tenants. Your life, every one of us in, the, in this room, your life is on loan from the Lord. You are a tenant in this life that God has given to you. The first parable is, is teaching us that God wants more than lip service. And the second the lesson of the second parable is that your life belongs to God and not to you. If you want to follow Jesus, you must see that he is the Lord. Throughout Matthew's gospel, it's never a good sign when someone calls Jesus teacher. It always shows a lack of sincerity, a half-heartedness, something that's often the question asker. We have to see that Jesus is the Lord. You have to see that God is in charge, that he is the authority over your life. We can only follow Jesus when we accept our status as tenants, not as landowners. We have a life that's on loan from God. And so listen, when you accept that you are a tenant and not the landowner, when you and Jesus disagree, Jesus wins. That's what that means. When Jesus offers you a teaching about sexuality, if you are a tenant, you receive Jesus' teaching on sexuality, not yours. When Jesus teaches you about money and says, it's, I read a children's book last night that made me cry called The Present. And it was basically Jesus' lesson that it's better to give than to receive. And as you keep sitting there hoarding your money, well, that's you living like an owner, not as a tenant. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's difficult. But if you are a tenant, when Jesus comes with a teaching that disagrees with you, Jesus wins. When Jesus challenges your finances, your sexuality, your politics, your parenting, fill in the blank. What do we want to be upset about this week? If you're the landowner, you can say, get off my property or else. But if you are the tenant, you say, your will be done. Your kingdom come. When you show up on Sunday, as we all have, and we say the right things, but we do not obey the Lord from here out in our daily lives, we're living like we are the owner, not the tenant. Just a couple of diagnostic questions for you to wrestle with. When was the last time the Bible changed your mind? When was the last time the scriptures disagreed with something that you believed or a position that you held? When was the last time you got in an argument with Jesus? and you obey Jesus. Maybe some of you feel like you can't argue with Jesus. I don't know what y'all prayers look like, but if you ain't arguing with Jesus, you're probably not really praying. 
You know, give me this. I want this. What's going on with this? I feel this way. When was the last time you laid down and allowed Jesus to win the argument? Maybe you heard, here's a good one. Maybe you heard something and it bothered you. Someone disagreed with you or brought some correction. And the worst is when they're a Christian and they use it with the Bible. You know what I mean? When they say, listen, I'm concerned about this. And have you looked here in Galatians where it says this, this is why I'm concerned. And they've got verses and you feel convicted. And so what do you do? You, you Google who has a different interpretation. You find somebody else that can get you out from underneath that clear command of the scriptures. You find somebody who can disagree with your politics or somebody who can disagree with your sexuality or whatever it might be. All the ways that we try to get slippery and change the scriptures. Maybe it's time to be like the first son. Here's the grace. Acknowledge. Most of us say no at first. I, don't, I have some very close friends who offer me regular correction. And I will tell you, one of them's been doing it for 20 years at this point, and I don't like it. I trust him. The man would take a bullet for me. We would go to jail for each other. We're taking each other's kids if something goes sideways. You know what I mean? Like if, if you hit, it's like, he's that kind of friend. And for 20 years and every time he's like, hey man, I think you need to not do that anymore. I hate it. I don't particularly enjoy it. And so maybe we need to acknowledge that we are like the first son who said no at first, but then we can still change our mind. Even this morning, you need to see you're the tenants in the parable. Lay down your weapons and follow the Lord. Allow him to be the Lord. Receive the correction of the Lord as a gift of grace, not as indictment. It's time to believe Jesus is the Lord and repent of living like you're the owner. And so we could have all these flowery words and maybe I could rhetorically convince you to agree with the concept of authority now or that Jesus has a good authority. But you know why authority is so hard for us? Because most of us have been deeply wounded by the authorities in our lives. Why is it so hard to trust pastors? Well, because most of us have had pastors who've abused us, who've lied to us, who've manipulated us for their own gain. Why is it so hard to trust politicians? Because politicians have abused us, they've lied to us, They've manipulated us for their own gain. Why can it be so hard to trust parents? Because we've had parents who abused us, who lied to us, and who manipulated us for their own gain. Authority for so many has been about domination. It has been about power and control. But oh, the joy of one whose trust is in the Lord who receives the benevolent authority of the Lord. Because listen, Jesus does not abuse us. He shepherds us and restores our humanity. Jesus does not lie to us. He keeps all of his promises. Jesus does not manipulate us. He empowers us as his brothers and sisters. And Jesus is not out for his own gain. Instead, he laid his life down for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. He took responsibility for sins which were not his to rescue a people that had run far from him. So what you, you who struggle with authority, what you need more than anything is to experience the healing power of divine authority in your life. 
allow God to be in charge of your life, experience a good king who loves you and will lead you. And so every week we anchor ourselves in an experience, a mystery that allows us to get a glimpse of what this means. And we do that by remembering the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He turned to his disciples after giving thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. So what did God do with his authority? I invite you to take your cup. We used to have the sound of Bible zipping up at the very end, and now we have the sound of <laughs> communion cups opening. What a, what a year. And so all of our half-heartedness, all of our feelings of guilt or failure, I want you to take this little piece of bread and remember, even so, the body of Christ was broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. The shame we carry from our half-heartedness, our resistance to the authority of the Lord can often leave us wondering where do we stand with him. And so I invite you again this morning to remember that your relationship with God is sealed through the shedding of his blood. So take this juice, drink it, and remember what he's done for you. So in closing, I would just ask, can you trust an authority that loves you this way, that wields their power this way? Look to the cross and empty tomb of Christ and receive his invitation of grace. Listen and obey. Allow God to be in charge of your life. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.